of A Slice of Medieval with myself, Sharon Bennett Connolly, and my friend and colleague, Derek Burks. Today, we're going to revisit an issue that was raised slightly in our very first episode. Our first episode was on the anarchy. So today, we're going to look at the white ship disaster, which is often seen as a direct cause of the anarchy. So what and when was the white ship disaster? The easiest answer is it was a shipwreck on the 25th of November, 1120. Now, the problem with the White Ship disaster is on board was William Athlin, the only legitimate son of Henry I. You have to say legitimate with Henry I because he had more illegitimate sons than he could actually count. But he had only one son who was legitimate, and that was William. And he died on the White Ship now, basically, the white ship, known as the Blanche Neve in French, set sail around midnight, which I didn't realise ships in medieval times set sail in the dark. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think, well, obviously they did, but but I, it occurred to me, actually, that crossing the channel in the daylight in the 12th century was still a little hazardous at times. Crossing it at night was really quite hazardous, I would have thought. Yeah, and especially when there was a bit of a celebratory mood about the um, sailing. The Anglo-Normans had just won a great victory against the French in 1119 at the Battle of Bremule and arranged a peace treaty with the French king. So they were all celebrating, heading home to England. Henry I had already departed on his own ship with William's little wife, I say little wife, she was about eight or nine years old, apparently, Matilda of Anjou, and his eldest illegitimate son, Robert of Gloucester. A ship's master, Thomas Fitzstephen, had approached Henry and offered his ship, the white ship, saying it was the fastest ship around, and his father had sailed William the Conqueror to England in 1066, so would Henry do him the honour of sailing on his ship? Henry declined, but William agreed. Now, given the history of ships that claim to be the best at something, you know, like the Titanic unsinkable, (laughs) (laughs) the white ship the fastest. You've got to wonder at the sense of anybody going, okay, let's go on, because this is bound to end in disaster. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, I think um, it it was a newish ship, but it had been refitted, hadn't it, recently? So it was Mm. supposed to be sort of state of the art at the time. I don't think the ship is the problem, really. No, no. To be fair, it's true. It wasn't the ship. Uh, I think it probably was fast, but uh, mm. I think it was the large rock that hit it that was more of a more of an issue. Um, and I guess if that and the drunk sailors. Well, yeah. I mean that that in itself is it's an interesting part of the whole story. I mean, we, we are told by 
several sources aren't we that they had been drinking that that the the the, the people on board the passengers had been drinking and also that the crew mm. had been drinking. Yes, apparently William had opened a couple of barrels of wine, offered it round to his passengers and his crew. Yes. Now, there was no wind that night either, so the crew ha- had to get to the oars to actually set sail and get the ship out of harbour. Mm. And apparently the helmsman was also drunk, which is a bit of a, you know, you really need your helmsman to be on top form when you're sailing after midnight. Yeah, what strikes me a little bit, uh, an analogy sprang to mind when I was reading about the the drinking was that it was a bit like, you know, a football stadium where where the the fans have been drinking before they actually get to the stadium. Yeah. And therefore their behaviour in the stadium is even worse than it Mm -hmm. would have been. And they do things that they wouldn't normally have done. And it seems to me if you're drinking for a few hours before the ship actually sets sail, Mm. A, the passengers have not a care in the world. (laughs) So, you know, they're going to say, yeah, let's go as fast as we can. Let's catch up with the king's ship because we should be able to because we're in the fastest one. And B, the the crew are going to be thinking, yeah, why not? Let's give it a go. Mm. So. The whole mood, the the, the sort of the, the level of uh, common sense is going to be fairly low, I would have thought, at night. And again, you know, it's the end of the day anyway. Yeah. I can't believe that the crew were fast asleep during the day preparing for their journey. I mean, I imagine they were quite sort of... No, they probably worked all day. Yeah, yeah. So it, it, it seems highly likely that that, that that is true because obviously, you know, 900 years later, it is rather difficult to, to ascertain exactly what happened. But there's, I don't think there's much reason to doubt that, that that was the situation. No, and then as the ship was leaving harbour, it struck a rock that is just underneath the surface of the water. But that rock is still there now. Yes. So it was a feature of the harbour that everybody must have known about. You know, you don't hear of ships striking this rock very often. No, it's Kielberf, is it Kielberf? Yeah, Kielberf. Kielberf, I think. And yeah, so I, I agree. It's it's a blooming great rock. So yeah, it's got to be. If you give it a name, yeah, <laughs> then it's a regular feature, isn't it? It's yeah, not, it's not yeah. like they didn't know it was there and it had just sprung up. <laughs> That's right. And I mean, one of the one of the reasons they they think they might have found the some wreckage from the white ship a year or two ago mm. is that they knew where to start looking. Yes. And, you know, a wreck at sea, entirely different. You haven't really got anything. You haven't got an easy starting point, particularly after 900 years. But because they knew it had hit this rock, it, it gave them a, a reasonable starting point with a chance of finding it whether they've actually found it or not is not i don't think confirmed one way or the other i think we've got to wait for the tv program have we <laughs> i think that's what's happening because it's earl spencer isn't that always the earl way spencer was part of the expedition and yes. I, he i believe he took a tv crew along with him so i'm expecting there will be a program sometime in the next 12 months or so <laughs> Yeah, it was a while ago they they died, mm. I think. 2021, something like that. Unless they didn't find anything, um, and then there won't be a programme, I suppose. <laughs> well, I, as far as I understand it, I think it was the 
the Institute for Digital Archaeology was, was the organization that that provided the, the divers and expertise. And I think what they said was they, they found uh, a considerable length of a mm. ship of the right sort of design, clinker built ship, the right yeah. sort of design, the right sort of fa- fastenings on it and so on. So, I mean, they didn't rule it mm. out. I mean, they're not cowboys. So so I guess they, they know what they're doing. So, yeah, it'll be interesting to find out what the kind of probability, the likelihood is of that being the actual white ship. Mm. But um, it's not a great deal of help to those who were on board. No, no. Uh, I suppose we should at this point mention the fact that Earl Spencer did write a book. Yes. Which two or three years ago now called The White Ship. I did read it at the time. I didn't have another look at it this weekend before recording this and thinking why I didn't. I don't know. I think I'd taken everything out of it that I needed because I got a book coming out next year called Women of the Anarchy. And the first chapter is, well, the prologue is about the white ship. So I was reading, rereading my own work yesterday. <laughs> right. After Sharon's shameless plug for her next book, <laughs> Earl Spencer's book, Charles Spencer's book, The White Ship, is certainly worth looking at for anybody who's interested in finding out the detail of, of, of the whole story. Mm. There is a significance, obviously, to this ship. It's not just any old ship, because not only did it have the heir to the throne on board, but it also had a number of other prominent people. If you think about uh, the idea of this is a prince, this is a young prince, he's 17 years old. And if you're a nobleman, a young nobleman of similar sorts of age, or maybe a bit older, you're going to want to be in, in this young prince's orbit. You're going to be want to be seen, to, to form connections with the crown, because he's the future. He is. It's not surprising that on board were many other uh, young nobles. I mean, he is the future. Henry the first was, what, 52 by this point? I mean, he was still sprightly, but everybody would have been thinking, he can't have much longer. So, yeah, there were there were 300 people on board, of which one apparently survived, a chap named Beryl the Butcher. No one seems to know why he was on the ship. Uh, one account I read said that he was probably chasing payments and decided he'd better go with the people who owed him money until he got the money. <laughs> well, but yes, that... Uh... That was something I, I came across as well. But, but the, the implication also of that was that's why he survived, because he wasn't drunk. He wasn't part of mm. the ship's company. He was only there to pick up debts from people who bought things from him during the day or during the previous days. Mm. And he didn't he didn't want the ship to sail uh, without getting some of his money. No. But yeah, so we don't know really, do we, uh, for certain, why he was on the ship, only sort of hearsay from the 12th century. And I've got a feeling he became a bit of a celebrity afterwards because he was the only one who could say what happened. Yeah, I mean, I, I have a real problem with that, I must admit. I mean, having looked at, I mean, that there are, there are several contemporary chroniclers, aren't there? there there's uh, Orderic Vitalis, mm. William of Malmesbury and Henry of Huntingdon, just to name three. And none of them were on that boat. <laughs> so No, uh, but they all know what happened. <laughs> well, yeah, this is it. And, and they do write about what happened as if it's kind of fact mind you william of malmesbury spoiler alert william of malmesbury is known to have made things up <laughs> so so i don't always believe what william of malmesbury says 
I think uh, Henry of Huntingdon and Audric Vitalis are maybe a bit more reliable. I don't know what you think, but they're a bit more reliable. But Henry of Huntingdon was a bit of a gossip. Yeah. So if he could put a bad spin on things and make people look worse than they were, <laughs> which is probably why he's the one who says that they were all drunk and sodomized. <laughs> Oh yeah, yeah. The the whole yeah. So yeah, he always put um put the darker side on the story. Yes, probably Audric Vitalis is is as reliable as we're going to get. I would think, isn't he? Yeah, for that for I that period. So. But I mean, he he and Henry of Huntingdon say very similar things about a lot of the the points of the story. Mm. The whole story about William actually getting into a a boat, a small boat, and moving away from the white ship as it sinks, and and then hearing his half-sister Matilda crying out for help, and then the boat goes back, and then yeah. Every man and his dog jumps into the boat and it sinks. That's the that whole story. I mean, only an eyewitness could have produced that story. Mm. So it has to have come from the one eyewitness that we've got, if it came from anybody. So either it's fiction and was totally made up, or something that the the this butcher from Rouen said led the chroniclers to either believe basically that William did try to go back for his half-sister mm-hmm. and then embellished the whole tale a little bit as well. I did read one suggestion that Beryl did tell it, but it was perhaps exaggerated to put William, the dead prince, in a good light. Yeah. You know, Henry I is not going to re- reward you for telling him your son tried to escape but still ended up drowning and yeah. never tried to save anybody else. This 17-year-old yeah. prince going back to rescue his sister does sound a bit better. Heroic death. Yes, exactly. Yeah. Rather than drunken death. Yes. <laughs> swimming while drunk. <laughs> I guess William was, if you like, though only 17, I suppose he was the senior person there insofar as that he was the heir to the throne. and Yeah. And it, it could have all been stopped if he decided to stop it at any point. It, it, they, they could have not sailed mm-hmm. if he decided it was too dangerous, but clearly he didn't. Most 17-year-olds that I've come across are not necessarily at the, their sort of full capacity of common sense when they've had a few drinks. No, that's true. So, yeah, I mean, the other thing is historical fiction has that particular episode of him going back to save his sister has been used in historical fiction and also twisted around a bit. Ken Follett's Pillars of the Earth does refer to the the, the white ship sinking and there is an implication that it's sabotage and that the intent was to kill the heir to the throne. Mm. And, And let's be fair, if you're listening, Ken, it's a very popular book. Lots of people have read it and... And it, that kind of really popular historical fiction does tend to sort of seep into people's factual memory as well. It, 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 it creates an impression that is long lasting. Yeah, I've heard the, there's a few conspiracy theories around it now. Yes. Mainly because Stephen got off the ship at the last minute. The future King Stephen was supposed to sail on the white ship. Yeah. And he got off at the last minute, whether it was food poisoning or just a concern that everybody on there was drunk. <laughs> we don't know. Well, Orderic Vitalis says he, he left because he was concerned about the excessive mm. drinking, doesn't he? Again, you know, how much... I think there's a lot of hindsight in this. 
Yes. Stephen of Blois was... I'm glad you said it. I can't pronounce it. <laughs> Blois. <laughs> I'm going to say it again now. <laughs> yes, Stephen. We've had trouble with this. Stephen of Blois was a nephew of, of Henry I, who had been raised up to some extent, a little bit. He'd been sort of at the court of Henry for a while. So he was a person of interest in terms of the, the, the royal court. But this is 15 years before Henry I dies. So even if, even if at that point, Stephen had the slightest notion that he might want to succeed his uncle, I really think it's far-fetched for somebody to sort of, oh, well, he got off the ship because he knew something was going to happen to the prince and yeah. thought he could benefit from it. I don't think that's a starter at all, really. Yeah, that was really playing the long game, wasn't it? <laughs> yes, yeah, that's right, yeah. Is it reasonable that he might have decided that the excessive drinking was a problem i don't know I, even that seems a bit of a stretch to me yeah i i read somewhere one suggestion was food poisoning yeah and that he had a dicky tummy <laughs> and so decided to get off and sail the next day when he was feeling a bit better yeah which to me makes most sense <laughs> yeah it does yeah the last does. thing you want to do is go on a boat when you're already feeling queasy yeah exactly yeah yeah, that does make more sense. And the other thing is about the conspiracy theory, I forgot this bit, 300 people died on that ship. Henry I lost three of his children, not mm -hmm. just one. Yeah. He lost William, his son and heir. But he also lost a daughter, Matilda, the Countess of Persh, yeah. and a son, Richard of Lincoln. Matilda was married to the Count of Persh. Richard was betrothed. He was due to get married and died in the white ship. But also killed was Richard d'Avranche, the Earl of Chester. Yeah. And his wife, Lucia Mahot, who was Stephen's sister. Yeah. So if Stephen was planning on the ship going down, surely he'd have taken his sister off as well. You'd hope so. <laughs> They were a funny family. But yeah, I, I, I'm sure you're right. I read also on the ship, there was something like, what was it? There were many nobles, stewards, chamberlains, and practically half the king's household was on the ship. You know, yeah. people that he couldn't afford to lose all in one go. No, that's right. I mean, as you kind of expect, some of the royal household officers and officials would accompany the heir to the throne. That, that makes total sense. Mm. Some would go with the king, some would go with the prince. And in a way... I mean, the fact that they went on different ships is enormously sensible. It would have been a far bigger disaster if both had both had died. They still do it in the royal family today. The king and the heir cannot travel in the same vehicle. Yeah. And that's probably because of this. <laughs> they thought, all those years back, actually, no. <laughs> I don't think so. <laughs> I guess we should examine the possibility of foul play. We, we've sort of said, I've talked about, I mentioned the pillars of the earth, the idea of sabotage. Sharon K. Penman talks about the, the sinking also in her book, When Christ and His Saints Slept. I'm not sure she she calls it sabotage. I think she she just refers, she describes what happens. Mm. But all of the people, without exception, I think, writing about this incident are clerics, they're clergy. Mm. Chroniclers of the day almost always were. And there is, I think, a sense of how does one explain, in the 12th century, how does one explain such an enormous disaster in religious terms, in terms of God's plan, in terms of why God would, would do this? Yeah. And inevitably one of the first things that always crops up from the point of view of a churchman is well it's a punishment for something mm -hmm. and that's where 
obviously the, the excessive drinking makes perfect sense in that view of the the episode because they were being punished for their yeah. bad behavior and uh, their sort of lack of care of what they were doing and and the, the other the other thing is they're all sodomite you mentioned that earlier uh, did you say that was henry of huntingdon yeah that was henry of huntingdon who said and so death suddenly devoured those who had deserved it <laughs> although the sea was very calm and there was no wind so i think that was the other thing they were trying to explain how could it happen in a calm sea yeah. So they must have deserved it. <laughs> yeah, because because storms at sea and shipwrecks due to storms were were totally to be expected in the Middle Ages. I mean, that was something was a fact of life. Mm. But the fact that it wasn't stormy made it more difficult for them to explain. Yeah. Cautionary tales seemed the way to go that that they were being punished. That's how they they tended to explain events anyway it's not particularly unusual way of explaining it although a shipload of sodomites does seem a little bit extreme but it is only henry of huntington who does that yeah. the anglo-saxon chronicle records it as a double grief one that they lost this life so suddenly the other that few of their bodies were found anywhere afterwards and that is the thing William's body was never recovered and very few of the dead were recovered. I mm. think Richard of Lincoln, Henry I's illegitimate son, I think they found his body, but they couldn't recognise him because his face was so bloated. Um, it was his fine clothes that they identified. Yeah, You'd think, it, I mean, it wasn't that far out to sea, so it, it may be a bit of a surprise, but perhaps the currents there were um, were taking bodies out to sea. Yeah. I mean, with the women, the one bit that someone pointed out tragically, that the women, there were 18 women on board and they stood no chance because it was November. Yeah. They were heavily dressed in yeah. big dresses and they were just dragged below the waves. Yeah. Well, even even the men, a lot of them would have been uh, heavily clothed yeah. or in rich, thick clothing. So again, it does, doesn't help. And also, of course, the water would have been very cold. Yes. So your chances of survival at night, even in water that wasn't particularly choppy, in cold water, your 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 time for survival is, is very limited. Mm. And if nobody pulls you out, then I guess most of them couldn't swim. Um, I don't know, but I, I think I would think a lot couldn't swim. Their chances of survival were therefore pretty low. Yeah, I don't think they'd have done their gold badge, so they wouldn't have been able to do the <laughs> lifesaver training and swim in pyjamas. <laughs> That's harsh. That's very harsh. <laughs> and also at night, you know, if some, if it's night, and remember they haven't got big lamps that can shine on the sea to see people. They've been alone, perhaps. That one ship would have been on its own, would it? I find that quite odd, but... But it sailed so late after Henry the First ship as well. And most of the ships went with Henry the First, so this was yeah. his last one. And like you say, at so late in the night, it would have been really disorienting. You know, you're in the water. I want to swim to shore. Where's shore? Mm, yeah. Because there would have been no lights on shore because of curfews. You know, they put the fires out before they went to bed. Exactly. Exactly. So there would have been no lights to show them where to go. No, every, everything was working against them. Mm. Even though the sea was not particularly rough, that they were they were at sea and um, they, they were disorientated. It was dark. There was probably no 
there might have been this one boat that's referred to it has a ring of truth there probably would have been a small boat on the white ship yeah. traveling to and from the shore perhaps at times so so that has totally got the ring of truth but there probably wouldn't have been more than one boat perhaps and if so the chance of launching even one boat in the dark were not great no but let's say they did, even that one boat would probably have had no light of any sort, would would probably have not known in which direction it was going apart from away from the rocks, mm. away from the wreck. So everything was against them, really. And it's not people perhaps are surprised there was only one survivor. I don't think that's very surprising at all, given the circumstances and perhaps yeah. many were the worst for drink as well, which wouldn't help. I'm surprised that he survived, actually. <laughs> I'm surprised there were any survivors. Yes, I think he's supposed to have been, he and somebody else were, were holding on to a piece of wreckage, I think, is the story, at least. Yes, um, a chap named Geoffrey Delegle, who was a young knight, and he was holding on to the same spar as Berold, but apparently he had fine clothes offering no protection. Mm. against the cold November night and um, he suffered from hypothermia, fell unconscious and fell under the waves. Yeah, I mean, it's it's uh, it's a bit of a sorry tale. Oh, and um, the master of the ship, Merrill said that he survived as well, Thomas Fitzstephen. Now, this was a bit an interesting story because he said that he survived the sinking and was still alive afterwards. But when he heard that William had died, he just gave up and drowned. Yeah. Well, how did he hear that William had died above all the screaming? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, 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 I don't believe that at all. I do believe it's possible he had survived and then didn't, you know, right, rather like the other guy. Yeah. He, he didn't make it in the end. But I don't see that necessarily he would have known that uh, William was dead. No. But, I mean, obviously, if he did, then there'd be a jolly good idea to to finish himself off because yeah. clearly he was not going to be very popular. And to be honest, seeing all those people go under, if you were the ship's captain and felt responsible, yeah, it would be enough to make you give up, I should think. It's it's the same with all the other things we've talked about. It's just so difficult to to pick the the factual bones out of the carcass of fiction that's that's wound wound around it. And the problem is, a lot of the fiction is from the chroniclers yeah. at the time. Not that they were trying to make up a story, but they were probably filling in some gaps. Oh, certainly, certainly. They had the story from this butcher who was the only one who was actually there. Yeah. And he's going to try and make his role in it as noble as possible. Yeah. But would they would they have been able to talk to people in Barfleur, which is where it set sail from, about the state of the ship and the crew and the passengers before it set sail? I mean, today, that if you were a reporter today on such an event, you'd be off to Barfleur, you'd be interviewing all the innkeepers, mm. you'd be interviewing everybody on the, the wharves and so on and saying, well, what was going on? You know, what was it like? What was the mood? You, that's what you'd be doing. And I just wondered whether chroniclers of the time would have had any access at all to anyone who witnessed it in Barfleur Fleur, apart from maybe Stephen, who obviously mm. would have done. That's true, because the chroniclers do tend to get things second and third hand. Yeah. 
themselves anyway. Yeah. A lot of them are in monasteries just waiting for the news to come to them. Yes. So there would have been other courtiers, perhaps, or people in Buffalo who who ended up at Henry I's court subsequently. Must have been. Yeah. So did chroniclers talk to any of those? They wouldn't have interviewed them as such, obviously, but they would have gleaned a few things, perhaps, from people who were in Buffalo mm. at the time. It's a long shot, but I'm sure they must have done. Yeah, uh, yeah I know people came over in the days after the disaster to tell, not Henry, because he shut himself away in his bed room for a few days yeah to tell the members of the court what they knew of what had happened but as we know is that if you ask five people who witnessed an event to tell you what happened you'll get five different stories yeah i can't believe that henry the first when he recovered from his grief a little didn't say to somebody in his household go to barfleur and and find out what the heck happened he must have done surely somebody would have would have gone mm-hmm. he wouldn't just say oh well never mind we won't bother thinking about it this guy Berold has told us all we need to know i can't believe that it doesn't sound that doesn't ring true to me i think they would have they would have at least tried to investigate it it's such a big thing yeah yeah i think he must have asked um some people to look into it and i think therefore maybe what we get from the the, the chroniclers of the time is a kind of synthesis of a range of bits of information which came to the court over the next few years even maybe after the event Mm -hmm. because in those days obviously time was moved rather more slowly in terms of news and events and so on so whereas today we'd hear about things in a few minutes they would hear about things over a period of months or maybe even years little bits of information would come out as a as a different person or a different source happened to mention something Mm. or perhaps wrote about it because that's the other thing i mean talking to anne o'brien last week about the paston letters it did make me think that some people even in the 12th century some people would have been writing to each other uh, some prominent people anyway yeah and when you think about it there must have been a report sent to matilda in germany to tell her what happened to her brothers and her sister you know there must have been information gone out to the king of france yeah and people all around just like there are now surely anybody hearing about an event of that magnitude that what's the first thing anybody says what happened what went wrong Mm. You know, that, yeah. that's a human reaction, isn't it? Mm. There must have been a report to King David in Scotland as yeah. well, because it was his yeah. nephew. So, yeah, there must have been reports going out everywhere to people to say what had happened, because it's yeah. what everybody does, even now, and they did then, you know. Yes, exactly. And other monarchs would have sent their condolences and things if they weren't at war at the time. <laughs> yeah. Oh, I do think that something must have gone to Germany to Empress Matilda and, and Emperor Henry because they were really good allies yes. with Henry the First. The, the the other thing is, of course, the magnitude of the loss of his son also meant that the news would be important to absolutely every ruler in the area. Yeah. Uh, regardless of whether they had a blood connection with the prince, it it meant something. It it, it had a mm. it had a ripple effect through Western Europe, and one can only assume therefore that the chroniclers of the time or at least some of them had access to people and reports and so on that said a bit more about what had happened than than we currently perhaps know Mm. and they they put that together into their accounts and one or two things may have come from other sources unfortunately for us we don't know we don't know which bits came from where 
and how reliable they were. Yeah. But you'd think that that the king, at least, Henry I, would have ended up with a very clear idea of what happened. Mm. Even though we may not be quite so clear, I would have thought that the Chronicle, which I think um, at least Henry of Huntingdon's, I think, came out during Henry's reign, before the end of his reign, I think. I think he wrote it in hindsight, but he was around during the anarchy. Yeah, yeah. So he would have, he was probably a young man at the time of the white ship. Yeah. I've got a feeling, I think I read somewhere or other that, that, that one part of his chronicle came out in uh, 1129. But I, I, I mm. don't quote me on that, folks. I think that's right. But the point I'm making is that if any of the chronicles, if anybody at all said anything, which the king felt was not true, then surely he would have been extremely hard on those people. Because it was such a raw thing for him, it was Mm. such a a personal blow. What I find really annoying is the Hyde Chronicle, which is also known as the Warren Chronicle, Mm. which is the one I used an awful lot with my book on the Earl's Warren. Um, It finishes in 1120. (laughs) It actually ends as the king and his entourage get to Barfleur. <laughs> it's like, how can you end it there? <laughs> it doesn't mention the white ship or anything. It's just the king's heading to the coast to go home. <laughs> well, that is quite odd. When's it actually published? When does it go out? Do we know? It was thought to have been written in the 1130s. So they knew what happened, but they just finished it. <laughs> yeah, that is odd, isn't it? Yeah. And, you, and and I wonder whether they just thought, well, let's not get into that. <laughs> You know, that, that whole can of worms, let's not go there. Let's just stop it when the king gets to Barfleur. Yeah. I, I mean, that would be a good reason to stop there. Unless, of course, there are later pages that are missing. Yes. Which is always a possibility. Which is always, always possible, isn't it? Yeah. Maybe the king ripped them out in his hoof. <laughs> <laughs> I don't think we can go there. But, I mean, obviously, um, there's always some form of censorship of things. Yes. But I think in the case of these these monks, these clerics who are writing the histories or the chronicles, a lot of it was they didn't know everything. They, they had patchy information. They knew a lot about mm. certain things and nothing about others. So all of these accounts are going to be flawed from that point of view, as, as all of the accounts in sort of the pre-modern world are, really, because they can never be as fully informed as as we might be today. And, of course, we know today that having a lot of information doesn't necessarily mean that it's correct. <laughs> no, that's true. So what repercussions did the white ship disaster have for England and Normandy? You you touched on this at the very, very start, but I, I want to just put it out there that if you look on Wikipedia, then you'll find that it, it says that the anarchy was a direct result of the, the white ship disaster. Well, I don't think it is. I don't think it's a direct result. It certainly played an enormous part in the succession problems of Henry I. There's no doubt about that, because obviously, uh, as you said earlier, he had lots of illegitimate sons, but but only one legitimate one. So it, it left then his entire succession hanging by a thread, and that thread was his daughter, Matilda, who we've already said was married to the 
the the German emperor. Yeah, that's the thing. At the time of the White Ship, in 1120, Rutilda was not an option. She was Empress of Germany. She hadn't got any children yet, but she was expected to. Yeah. And she was in Germany with her husband. There was no way he would let her come back to England to rule England when he needed her there yes. to give him heirs. So in 1120, Matilda was not an option. So Henry had very limited options. I did read this morning that the whole reason Henry and Matilda of Scotland only had two children, a boy and a girl, was because Henry didn't want his son to experience the succession dispute that he and his brothers had gone through. So he thought once he'd got his son, that was the only legitimate son he wanted. I think that's quite short-sighted when you think that child mortality rates in those days were quite high. What you're telling me is that Henry I was an idiot. <laughs> isn't it? One son. One son. I mean, everybody knew one son wasn't enough. Well, that is a suggestion I saw this morning. I'm not sure I agree with it. The other argument is that Queen Matilda of Scotland had this agreement with Henry, I will give you two children, but then I'm done. Or one source says there was a third child, another boy named Richard, who died in infancy. And it's possible that with that third childbirth, Matilda suffered some injuries and couldn't have any more children. Yes. Which I think actually seems more likely. Far more likely, I think, given the number of illegitimate children Henry had, which, you know, is in the 20s somewhere, isn't it? Mm -hmm. And those are the ones he acknowledged. I mean, there might have been others. So given that, it seems very likely that uh, perhaps the problem was, I mean, childbirth, as you know, was was a... It was very dangerous. Very dangerous. And even if if a woman didn't die... Mm. There was always the possibility of complications, which uh, which meant that she couldn't have any other children. So I think that is a that is a real possibility, and it does kind of explain why Henry managed to have so many other children. Mm. Yet, at the same time, no more legitimate ones. But he got married again, didn't he? Yes, well, that's the thing. You can imagine Henry when he's come out of his grief, thinking, "Well, actually, I can make more." <laughs> You know, I've got 20 odd children out there. Yes, I don't have a legitimate son, but all I have to do is get married again and that will be sorted. And he does. He marries really quickly. Yeah. Which suggests that he was actually already considering remarrying before the disaster, because it's like 10 weeks after his son's death, mm. 29th of January, 1121, that he marries yeah. Adeliza of Louvain. Given the contracts involved and negotiations involved in marriage in those days, somebody was very on the ball or it was already in the process when the White Ship disaster happened. Yeah, I mean, Henry I is one of the most organised kings that we've we've had in that period, really, isn't he? Mm. I mean, he is very organised, very on top of things administratively and, and in, in the niceties of the law and all those sorts of things. He's on it. He's on, he's on top of everything. So it wouldn't surprise me if he had, you know, a backup plan. Mm. It's possible, certainly. But then he marries. And, and in fact, he doesn't die until 1135. So in theory, there were 14 or so years when he might have been able to father another heir. Yeah, and have the heir a teenager by the time he inherits the throne. But he doesn't. And Henry does everything he can. Poor Adeliza is dragged around everywhere with him. He, she doesn't leave his side. She is there literally on tap, bless yeah. her, <laughs> for the first few years of their marriage so that he can <laughs> have his way as often 
as possible to produce the heir, and yet she doesn't get pregnant. You'd think that somebody would have mentioned if yeah. she was with child at any point, but there's no mention of it. Well, you would think that because if it was known because of the significance of the, the whole succession issue. And she's 17, I think it is, when she marries Henry. Henry's in his 50s, so there is a big age gap. And Henry, of course, has got this long line of illegitimate children. So he knows mm. he's fertile. Yeah. Or he believes he's fertile. Or he has been, at least. <laughs> yeah. So it's definitely, as far as he's concerned, it's Adeliza's fault that they don't have children. Yeah. I just like this bit that after Henry dies and Adeliza remarries, she marries William Daubigny. And she has five children, <laughs> I think it is, a five or seven. You know, she has enough to prove that she definitely was fertile and it wasn't her. <laughs> there's a great irony isn't there yeah. really i mean yeah so he tries that he tries to marry again have another child and that basically doesn't work he had illegitimate sons and notably robert earl of gloucester yes. robert fitzroy earl of gloucester who was his eld i think his eldest illegitimate son wasn't he yeah he was he was the the eldest child yeah and it's not as if he ignored him i mean he it showered a fair amount of rewards on him and he was important to Henry at court. Mm -hmm. He was important in terms of advising Henry as well. So he was he was very centrally involved. Yeah, it looks like he's Henry's right hand man. Yeah. Basically, once he's become an adult, he's the one Henry turns to for everything. And he's the one in the centre of the fight at the Battle of Bramule and all afterwards, it's always Robert. But the problem is Robert's illegitimate. And despite the fact his grandfather, William the Conqueror, was illegitimate but accepted as king, yeah, it's not the case by the 1120s. It, it's illegitimacy is frowned upon for inheritance purposes. All the illegitimate children are basically barred from the throne. The church had started to come down more strictly on Danish marriages. Handfasted marriages. Yeah, handfasting and things like that. And illegitimacy was a bar from any inheritance, which is a shame because I do think Robert would have probably made a great king. Was Robert's mother still alive, do you know? Have you any idea whether she was still alive when after 1120? He was originally known as Robert of Khan. So they think his mother was from Khan. Yes. But she hasn't actually been positively identified. Right. So we don't know if she was still alive. We don't know if any of his other siblings were full siblings. Because Henry did have a habit of keeping his mistresses for a long time. Yes. You know, there was one mistress who had about four or five children by him. Mm. It just struck me that could he not have married her and legitimised his son Robert? Mm. But if she... She wasn't still alive, for example, or... Or so lowly of birth that it wasn't possible. Yeah. He, he tries to then ensure that his daughter, Matilda, his only legitimate surviving child will succeed but yeah. surely that's that's more of an uphill struggle than than giving the throne to his illegitimate son yeah he doesn't seem to see it as that no i think he saw it as i'm the king what i say goes even after i've died because yeah in 1125 matilda's husband emperor henry dies and she has no children so she has no reason to stay in germany to act as regent for uh, her own children so she gets recalled to England to Normandy actually and spends the next few years in constantly in Henry's company and Henry makes sure that the Anglo-Norman barons swear fealty to Matilda and recognise her 
as his heir, even when she is married to Geoffrey of Anjou, mm. because a woman can't rule without having a husband, Henry makes sure that it is Matilda and not Matilda's husband that the barons swear fealty to. He basically promises them that Geoffrey of Anjou is going to have no say in England and Normandy. It's going to be Matilda. Yeah. But he knows they're not going to accept Geoffrey, but they should accept Matilda. Yeah, I mean, the backstory there is, of course, that Anjou itself is is an enemy of Normandy, really. I mean, it's a, it's a rival state on the borders of Normandy. Anjou has been at war with Henry I and with the many of the Anglo-Norman barons. But it was Geoffrey's dad, Fulk, who was at war, and Henry I had actually beaten him in battle. And that's how come Fulk's daughter, Matilda, was married to William Athling in the first place. Yeah. And the county of Maine belonged to Fulk's wife. And he was to give that to William Athling on his marriage to Matilda. Yeah, as a, as a dowry. As a dowry. And um, Geoffrey was Matilda's brother, but he was only 14 when he married Empress Matilda. Mm. This is where it gets confusing. There are so many Matildas. It is... There's more Matildas than we could do with, really. Yeah, exactly. There are tons more Matildas than we can do with. So you have to remember to use their full title all the time so that you know which one's which. But the thing is, to the Anglo-Norman barons, Geoffrey of Anjou, young though he was, was an enemy. So for, for Henry to marry Matilda to Geoffrey of Anjou was kind of making things even worse. It was bad enough they had to swear an oath that a woman would rule. A woman had not ruled England before. So that was bad enough. But then mm. he, she was married to this 14-year-old Potioi yep. from Anjou who was regarded as the enemy. Yeah, and as far as Empress Matilda was concerned, merely a count. Yes, yeah. Um, she she actually believed she was marrying way below her station. Yeah. And made sure everybody knew that. <laughs> How old was Matilda? She was, in, was she in her 20s? Yes, she was about 26, I think. 26, and she was marrying this 14-year-old. That must have been fun. Embarrassing, isn't it? <laughs> so for her, it was possibly the worst thing she could imagine. Mm, he was a child. He was a count. He was an enemy. <laughs> yeah, yeah. From what little I know, I don't think he was a terribly great character, was he? He was a bit full of himself, wasn't he? Yeah, he was very full of himself. He was a good soldier. I mean, he did manage yes. to take yeah. Normandy. And he must have been a pretty good dad because he was the one who raised the three boys, not Matilda, not Empress Matilda. She was in England fighting when her sons were young. So he kept them alive, the three boys alive. So <laughs> that's all you want from a dad, isn't it? <laughs> Success, yes. Managed to keep them alive, yeah. So, I mean, basically, Henry's solution in the end was to promote Matilda, if you like, in the succession, to get the barons to swear an oath to her and hope that beyond his death, they would keep those oaths. Mm. But he also showered a lot onto his nephew Stephen during that time, didn't he? Stephen became very prominent at court. I wonder if in the time between 1120 and 1125, when Matilda came home, if he wasn't thinking that Stephen might be his heir. Yeah. Not that he named him, but that he thought that if he didn't have a son of his own, Matilda was in Germany then Stephen was probably his best option. There was another option. 
Yes. Henry's brother, Robert, was captive in Bristol Castle, was it at the time or somewhere, and had been for a long time. But Robert had a son himself named William Cleeter, who was a thorn in Henry's side for most of the 1120s. I think he died in 1128 or 1129. But until that point, he would have been technically Henry's heir because he was the son of Henry's brother. So he should have had a stronger claim to anyone other than Empress Matilda. Mm. But Henry was determined that his brother Robert, who died just the year before Henry did, I think, and Robert's son William were not going to get anywhere near the throne of England or the Duchy of Normandy. Yeah, I mean, so so to clarify, in case anyone's not sure, Robert is Henry's older brother who they've been at yes. odds for many years and, and Robert is imprisoned. And his son, as you say, William Cleto, therefore has a claim to the English throne if Henry has no sons. But Stephen is the is the son of Adela, who is Henry's sister. Yes. But 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 there's also there are other sons. Theobald was was older. Theobald of Blois. Yes, Stephen's the third son. Yeah, the- Theobald was older. There was a William who was disinherited. Yeah. No one seems to know why. He was possibly um, mentally challenged. I don't know. Then there was Theobald who would inherit the county of Blois. And Stephen was the third son. So it, was, it wasn't even that Stephen was the eldest who should inherit. No. And there was Henry as well, who was um, Bishop of Winchester. And in fact, when Henry died, some people thought that Theobald ought to be ought to be a successor. He wasn't without champions. Yeah, the barons of Normandy actually met and chose Theobald as Henry's successor. Yeah. But while they were meeting, Stephen was getting on a boat, going over to England, racing up to Westminster Abbey and getting himself crowned. By the time they presented the idea to Theobald, Stephen was king. Yeah. I mean, a lot of people will say, well, hang on a minute. What was Matilda was the heir? What was she doing at that point in time? But of course, she had difficulties of her own, didn't she? When Henry died, she'd fallen out with Henry anyway over there were three castles that were supposed to have been handed over to Matilda on her marriage. And Henry was holding on to them. I think it was three. Might have been more in Normandy. And Matilda had already given birth to a son, Henry, a son, Geoffrey, in 1134. And she nearly died giving birth to Geoffrey. And it took her a long time to recover from that birth. She even decided where she was going to be buried. Mm. Henry even visited her because he thought he was going to lose her. And it took her a long time to recover from that. And then just as Henry I died, she found out she was pregnant again. Mm. So she couldn't do anything very quickly because the poor woman was about to have another baby. And she'd already had a bad experience Mm. with baby number two so she would have been taking extra care to make sure baby number three came along safely and didn't put her risk her life anymore yeah and heading across the channel to take the throne of england or become queen was probably uh not high on her list at that point given the risks involved i think she also probably thought she's got the oath of the barons they'd sworn twice at least to yeah. accept matilda as their monarch once Henry the first mm. died. So she may well have thought, well, I've got their oaths and those oaths are unbreakable. If they've given the oath, then they have to stick by it. Unfortunately for her with Stephen, once a king is anointed and crowned, that is it. Yeah. It's irrevocable. And Stephen was well aware of this, obviously, ran to Westminster, got himself crowned and it's done. <laughs> Stephen, who, of course, was one of those who swore the oath to Matilda. Yeah, 
he saw the oath, but once he was crowned king and anointed, as far as he was concerned, and Europe was concerned, it didn't matter. The anointing of a king overruled any previous oaths anyway. All bets were off. Now, a, a little while back, I said I didn't think it, that the death of William Adeline on the white ship was a direct cause of the of the anarchy because of the fact that Stephen took the throne rightly or wrongly he was king in 1135 and therefore one could not say that England was without a king nor was there any struggle for the throne Stephen acted quickly took the throne made sure that he had uh, enough support from the barons to do so they rubber stamped it yep including Matilda's half-brother, Robert, Earl of Gloucester. He he also uh, accepted it. So in 1135, the white ship was sort of irrelevant to the succession because Stephen had made himself king and everybody had accepted that, probably not Matilda, but everybody who mattered in England had accepted it. Yeah, I think there was one baron who never accepted it. Was it Baldwin de Redvers? Yes. who's Earl of Devon. He was the only one who never accepted Stephen. Yes. And he turned to piracy when um, Stephen became king because he lost his land, so he went pirating. Yeah, you, you've sort of got to take your hat off in a way to somebody who, when everybody else was sort of caving in, mm. decided to stick to his principles. So... At that point, without labouring all of this, there was no civil war, there was no anarchy, and that only occurred when Robert Earl of Gloucester decided in 1138, suddenly, it appears, though I'm sure it wasn't sudden, to support the claim of Matilda to rule England. And and that's where the the anarchy, the civil war, and so on stems from. So we don't need we've we've talked about the anarchy before. So I guess we don't need to dwell on that. But just to make the point that though the the wreck of the white ship was a disaster and clearly a personal disaster for Henry and many others, in the end, the line of succession from William the Conqueror had been preserved because Stephen was a descendant of William the Conqueror and. Thanks. And therefore, the white ship disaster did not make a massive difference. It changed who succeeded, but but only slightly, if you, if you see what I mean. Yeah, I think that's true. The one thing we can say is that the white ship did cause a period of instability yes. in the 1120s because there was no clear heir to the throne. Yeah. William Cleto, Henry's nephew by his older brother Robert, was causing trouble. And Henry was trying his best to get another son. So that would have caused concern hmm. until I think it probably calmed down a bit when Empress Matilda came home. Because even though she was a woman, there was an heir. Well, there was a plan, wasn't there? There, there was some certainty. Yeah, there was a plan. Because the worst thing for any country is the uncertainty of what's going to happen next. You couldn't talk about the king's death, but everybody worried about it. <laughs> yeah, and Prince William, William Adeline, had been—he was sort of known as Rex Designatus. He—he was—he was the next king for sure. Until he died, of course. He had been groomed. Yeah. He had been groomed to be king from birth. At the age of 10, he was attesting royal deeds. He was educated with fond hope and immense care. Everything about his education was to do with him becoming king. Yeah. So he was trained in diplomacy, foreign policy. As a knight, you know, he when he died, he'd already fought in a battle mm. the year before. He was married. And the barons in 1115, the barons in Normandy had sworn homage and fealty to him as the king's heir. And they did the same again 
in England in 1116. Yeah. And he was assumed to be the future king of the Norman English. And he was created, at least in, in name, Duke of Normandy, wasn't he? He was, yes. So that was a tradition that would later carry on throughout the monarchs because the Duke of Normandy owed fealty to the King of France. Mm. So rather than the King of England swearing fealty to the King of France, yeah. if he made his son Duke of Normandy, then it was a prince swearing fealty and he didn't look like a king owed anything to another king. No. Now, I saw an, a really odd line in Henry of Huntingdon describing him, says he was a prince so pampered, and it talks about him being destined to be food for the fire. Have you come across that? I, I'd only came across it recently, uh, but it seemed really odd. Well, I don't think Henry of Huntingdon liked him. <laughs> I, well, I'm getting that impression, but it, I mean, clearly written, well, I assume written after his death, but destined to be food for the fire. That seems quite a condemnation. Yeah, I did read that, actually. And it's like he was saying it in hindsight. He knew yes. what William's fate was yes, when that's he right. wrote that. He wrote it after his death. But why use that phrase? What did he mean by that phrase, food for the fire? don't know that he was so bad he was going to hell, maybe. It's sort of got a, a whiff of damnation about it, hasn't it? Yeah. On the other side, I've got, um, what was it, Waste wrote, William Henry's son gave and spent generously and dwelt with his father who loved him very much. He did what his father asked and avoided what his father forbade. So according to Waste, he was a really good boy, <laughs> which yeah. doesn't sound true of a 17-year-old anyway. <laughs> well, no, there is that. We always forget we forget those sorts of things. I mean, we, we forget normal life. I mean, I know it's not the same. 20th, 21st century is not the same as the 12th century. But young people must surely have been prone to do daft things and, and experimental things. and. Yeah and rash things then as now i know their their upbringing was different there was mm. kind of no such thing as a teenager they were they were more sort of young he's a young adult really isn't he he's, he's acting as if he's an adult in the world of the 12th century i just i just don't quite get this food for the fire i, I think it's as you said henry of huntington didn't like him but it's it's a it's a pretty rough thing to say about someone who's dead who's, who's mm. died but but yes, in general, as far as we know, he was a good prospect to be king. We we have no real evidence to the contrary, do we? I mean, we? Henry was devastated by his death, not just because it was his heir. It was because he was his son and he'd yeah. thrown everything into this boy. And he was only 17. If you think yeah. that there were 15 years left of Henry's reign, he would have been in his 30s by the time he became king. Yeah. Got all that youthful exuberance out of the way, had a couple of kids and be ready to take on the responsibility of kingship. You can't say whether or not been, he would have been any good at it, but he had the training to be good at it. Yeah, I mean, one thing I think we can be pretty certain about is that, that there wouldn't have been a civil war with his sister. No. Because his succession was cut and dried as far as she was concerned. She wasn't expecting anything else. So that element of it certainly was thrown into disarray by, by his death. Mm. You have to think, actually, it would have been if he'd survived and lived, it would have possibly meant a better life for Empress Matilda because even if she did come back, still came back to England in 1125 because she had nothing for her in Germany, she would not have been forced into a marriage she hated. You know, yeah. she might have actually been given a more happy marriage because it wouldn't have been one that was dynastic and forced on her so quickly either. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's obviously difficult to 
to sort of try and guess what might have happened. And if she was in her mid twenties, I went when she married Geoffrey of Anjou. I su I suspect that in any case, Henry would have married her to somebody fairly quickly. Mm. And you know, who knows whether William Adeline would have had any children? You know, we're in the realms of of fantasy, though we just don't know. But it, but it would have been different. That's one thing we can be certain about. Yes. It would have been different. Yes, it would not have been. What was it? said openly that Christ and his saints slept. Yes. I mean, the, the, well, we can't say, we can't even say there wouldn't have been a civil war, I guess. But what we can say is that that particular kind of civil war wouldn't have happened in the way that it did. Mm -hmm. And that's all we can say. And as we said a few minutes ago, Stephen's accession to the throne effectively meant that order was restored in terms of the succession and most other aspects of the reign. So again, there's no reason necessarily why there should have been anarchy or civil war at that point. Mm. Okay, so maybe we should sort of draw together our thoughts about the the white ship. We don't think it was sabotage. We don't think the evidence is there for that. No, I think it was an accident as a result of drunken incompetence, basically, <laughs> by the sound of it. You know, it was a combination of errors that led to this disaster. The 300 people died as a result of it. And mm. William does seem to get the blame for that as well. You know, this 17-year-old yeah. boy who apparently told everybody to have a drink, he's the one who gets the blame for it. Yes, he was the most senior person on board, but his tutor, Ottowell, who was an illegitimate half-brother of the Earl of Chester, was also on board and died. And you'd think that the prince's tutor might have had some kind of authority over him in order to tell him, stop giving out these stupid orders. But maybe not. I, I just think youthfulness is, is at the heart of it, really. I just think mm -hmm. not only was he young, but he would have been surrounded by a lot of young people. Yeah. And a crowd of young people. And they were all celebrating. Yeah. Everybody yeah. was already celebrating before they came on board. Yeah. There was this party atmosphere. Yeah. And how many times does that lead to disaster? Fairly mm. frequently, I think. That might not perhaps not disaster, but certainly to problems. Yes. So so we think that's that's at the heart of it. We don't think that uh, anybody planned it. We don't think that Stephen left the ship because he had some premonition of what was going to happen. We think he probably just uh, didn't feel that great. Yeah, <laughs> he was feeling a bit crazy <laughs> and probably the next day very grateful. And we think that though it had very significant effect on Henry's succession policies, yes. in the end, we don't think that it, it actually caused the anarchy itself no i don't think so i think it was if you go back to your a-level history and look at long-term and short-term causes yeah. <laughs> it's definitely one of the long-term causes but it's not the only one no but it is a catalyst of the next 15 years of uncertainty, uncertainty. and instability yeah. about the succession yeah. Well, I think the cause of the anarchy was Stephen stealing Matilda's throne. So. <laughs> well, that is one way of looking at it. <laughs> uh, very firmly in the Matilda camp is Sharon Bennett Connolly. <laughs> I am. I think Matilda of Boulogne would have made a better monarch than Stephen would have. But that is another story, <laughs> which we're not going to do today. <laughs> no. 
we we could do a whole feature on women no named Matilda, and it would take us about three days. Probably. Yeah, and we probably still would only scratch the surface. Yeah, there's a lot of them. And you know what's annoying? A lot of them weren't called Matilda originally. Empress Matilda was called Adelaide when she was born. Matilda of Scotland was called Edith. Even Matilda of Anjou, William's wife, was originally called Alice, and it was changed to Matilda when she married William. Okay, so we've exhausted the possibilities on the white ship, and we look we look forward possibly to some a TV program, perhaps on this, it would be this, amazing the discovery of the wreck. Mm. If it is the white ship, the discovery of this wreck near the original site. It would be amazing if they did find it. Wonder whether that will tell us anything new. Well, thank you everyone for listening. Do join us next time when we have Michael Jones with us talking about the Black Prince. I've been Sharon Bennett Connolly, and I'm Derek Burks. Thank you very much for listening today. And if you enjoyed our podcast, why not subscribe to ensure you don't miss the next one? Goodbye. Thank you. Bye.